I am Paul Jones, and you are listening to The Spirit of Lux. As a photographer, you're always looking at scenes in front of you and the events that are likely to unfold and anticipating. The most interesting pictures are those where the expression has some, let me say, energy to it. As a photographer, I'm at my which is doing a story, which is the trade I learned in, with magazines, then you are actually building up a set of photographs which together do the job. It's impossible not to be excited by Yunnan with its fantastic topography and its cultural diversity and pretty good weather. In fact, the name Yunnan means south of the clouds. Nan is south, Yun, clouds. Because the weather happens to be uh, pretty amenable. Welcome to another episode of The Spirit of Lux. Today I'm joined by one of the most widely published photographers, Michael Freeman. Michael's work has been featured in some of the world's most well-known magazines and publications throughout his illustrious career. In normal times, Michael spent half his time traveling in Asia on photography assignments. There's a lot to cover in this episode. We dive into a marvelous photographic journey with Michael along the historical T-Horse trade route in Yunnan, in the south of China, from Pua to Dali, Lijiang, Shangri-La, and all the way to Benziland. Lux Tea Horse Road, China, is a collection of retreats located in some of the world's most off-grid destinations. Michael is also the co-author of the large-format reportage book, The Life of Tea, which was the result of a three-year photographic exploration into the world's finest tea producers from the top artisanal growers in China, Japan, Sri Lanka, and India, including tea plantations farmed by Buddhist monks, teaware craftsmen, as well as tea connoisseurs. Michael Freeman, so good to see you this morning, bright and early, coming in from London, and I'm speaking to you from Singapore. Michael, we've known each other for some time. What I know about you is that you are one of the world's most famous photographers, and that is my favorite hobby. And I was very fortunate to go on a, a photography workshop with you, Michael. But I would like the listeners to hear from you how you became a photographer, and how you became world famous. Thank you, Paul. You really sound like my agent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure about the world famous, but anyway, how I became a photographer, I will keep this very short, but I started in advertising. And the reason I started in advertising is when, when I left Oxford, uh, where I studied geography and anthropology, I honestly didn't know what to do. And at that time, there was a publication which uh, called the Directory of Opportunities for Graduates that advertised, because it was full employment, 
in which employers, including the state, advertise their wares. And the advertising agents, of course, wrote the best copy. So I decided to go into advertising. And it was fun. I enjoyed it. Don't regret a minute after it. But after a few years, I was getting frustrated because I, I was very much into photography. But in those days, you actually did as you were told. And photography was not considered to be, at least at school, a proper profession. So basically, I escaped from advertising by buying some secondhand cameras from a friend in the media department. And the agency gave me two and a half months sabbatical, totally unheard of these days. And I went up the Amazon. The story goes on from there, but it, we don't have the time. But anyway, yes, it worked. Wonderful. And when I ran through my notes from our workshop, you taught me one thing about uh, photography. You said it's like painting with light. Could you shed some light on painting with light? <laughs> well, light is, it's obvious, it's a, it's a truism, of course, that photography needs light in order to, in order to work. But the, the quality of light and how it falls on scenes and subjects varies hugely. And in order to be a successful photographer, it's not the only quality, by the way, there are many other things apart from light, but you have to have some sensibility to the, the quality of light. And, and as you know, when we were together on part of the T-Horse Road in Yunnan, the light was beautiful, I mean, spectacular. It changed all the time. And as a Brit, I'm used to changing light. But you do remember, don't you, the, the light and the clouds just sweeping across the mountainsides. And so that was, I think, a reasonable piece of advice because you took it on board and took some very good pictures. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, and I remember you were always waiting for that moment, and you could actually calculate when that moment would come, and you were always right. And that became quite a hallmark of that trip, because you were always chasing the light, and you knew where it was and where it was coming from. And, and then you taught us about the, the golden hour. What is the golden hour, Michael? The golden hour, and I'm a little hesitant, actually, to promote this too much because it's a crowd pleaser, and that's fine, but, you know, there are other more interesting kinds of light. But golden hour is essentially when the sun is close to the horizon. In other words, the late afternoon towards sunset and the early morning. It's not necessarily an hour. It can be two hours, depends on the latitude the season. So when the sun is low, first of all, the, the color of the light, of the sunlight, is, of course, it, it's more golden than white because it's passing through more atmosphere. But the interesting thing about a low sun is that it strikes subjects in a variety of interesting and unpredictable ways. And it's kind of you to say that I was always right, but 
basically, I always claim to be right, which isn't quite the same thing. And, and like a lot of people, like um, poll predictors and, and magicians, I only <laughs> show or talk about the successes. But experience tells you that things are going to happen. The light is going to fall in a certain way. But there are still surprises. I mean, it's not possible to know everything. Yeah. And another thing you taught us on that trip was about focus. And the obvious one is to look into the eyes of people and focus on the eyes. And that's that's an obvious one. But what you said is you said look for the expression and watch the expression on people's faces and if you can capture that through the the eyes and and then the whole face it just makes such a difference to the output of the actual shot and i really remember after your workshop i looked at things very differently and it's that sort of photographer's mindset that opens up a different world. Would you care to comment on that and educate our listeners how to develop that photographer's eye? Well, as a photographer, you're always looking at scenes in front of you and the events that are likely to unfold and anticipating. And of course, what you're anticipating is the aim of that is to capture a moment that pleases you. There is no perfect moment. There are moments that most people will say were good, and there are moments that for each particular person make the difference. Now, if you're photographing people and they are the main focus of attention, then when you have time, and you usually do, even if it's only seconds, it could be many seconds, then you don't just take the picture as soon as you think about it. You take the picture when the, the action in front of the camera is interesting, it's uh, dynamic. And when it comes to people, there are three things, and it rather depends on how close you are to them. If you're at a distance, it's the posture. In other words, the way people stand, move, the shape of the body. Some are more interesting, some are more elegant than others. Then there's gesture, which normally is focused on the hands and the arms, but also other parts of the body. Think of uh, the shrug of the shoulder or a head being cocked, you know, to listen or, or query. Uh, but the most expressive part of a human being is, of course, the face. And the most interesting pictures are those where the expression has some, let me say, energy to it. Uh, there's a difference, I think we could all see, in between what people call a blank expression and one that is animated. So expression is everything, particularly with the kind of photography we were doing, which is not in the studio where you can you know, talk to, manipulate the person. This is on the fly. I don't know if everybody knows of Henri Cartier-Bresson, the, the greatest photographer, uh, the founder of Magnum 
the agency. And he produced a book which became a very well-known phrase, a cliche now called the decisive moment. And there is a decisive moment, and that's the one to capture. But actually, that was his American publisher. The way he spoke about his photography was a la sauvette, which is doesn't have a complete English translation, but it means on the fly, just reacting quickly, catching on the run. And that, when you're dealing with uncontrollable life in front of you, which is frankly the most interesting kind of photography, that's what you have to be aware of. So you anticipate, you pay attention to the movements, the movements across a person's face included, and you catch it. Exactly. Now, you and I are both from the UK, and yet we met in Asia. And when we met, the first thing that uh, struck me was you are passionate about Asia. So please talk to us about uh, your attraction to Asia and, and how did you first discover Asia? Yes. I mean, the fundamental answer, I really don't know what it is, except that having escaped advertising into photography by going up the Amazon, I was fully committed to, let's say, exotic travel. And in those days, you know, there was no long haul tourism. So it was quite adventurous. And I've always, to be honest, in an adolescent way, I've never lost it, um, a love of adventure. And Asia began for me with uh, one of my first really supportive clients, which was Time Life. And the time they were doing a series of, of books, and these were, they were called Peoples of the Wild, which is not a politically correct title these days, but it was about remote small communities around the world. And I was assigned to a, a hill-dwelling minority in the north, which lives in the north of Thailand, uh, north of Burma and the south of China in southwest Yunnan. And they're called the Akka. Now, at the time, in the late 70s, there was no access to anywhere else except northern Thailand. And I had a three-month assignment, which was unheard of, really. I mean, assignments tended to be longer in those days for magazines and some book publishers. But this was a tremendous opportunity. So I, and I lived in the village. And this caught my imagination and, and attention because I had already studied anthropology as part of my geography master's at, at Oxford. And so I really fell in love with this whole exotic area of Southeast Asia. Then, after that, I kept returning to Southeast Asia. Unfortunately, because there was an increasing demand for pictures from places like Thailand, and Cambodia, Indonesia, there was assignment work, which is, of course, what photographers do, what I do, documentary reportage need. And so... 
in fact, I began in Thailand and spread out from there. So around about 15 years ago, I reached China. It's not the first time I was in China. I was there in, in 1985 for a week covering the, the return of a species of deer that had uh, become extinct in China and there was still a herd in, uh, in England anyway. And so basically it, it, it began like that and it continued and I never lost my fascination. And when people living outside China think of China, their thoughts go to Beijing and the Great Wall or Shanghai. But when you, uh, Michael Freeman, you think of China, you think of Yunnan. I mean, Yunnan rolls off your tongue and your eyes glaze over because you have this powerful attraction for Yunnan and and also Sichuan and, and Tibet. How did that happen? I mean, as you know, it's impossible not to be excited by Yunnan with its fantastic topography and its cultural diversity and pretty good weather. In fact, the name Yunnan means south of the clouds. Nan is south, Yun, clouds. Because the weather happens to be uh, pretty amenable. The reason why I my interest in China entered rather the back route was down to a publisher and old friend of mine, Narissa Chakra, who has a publishing company in Bangkok. We'd worked together for many years. I've done many books on Thai culture, then Angkor and Cambodia. And we had lunch one day and she said, well, you know, I, I've, we've done all this and, and actually I just like to move out in publishing terms from Southeast Asia. Can you find me something in, in Southern China that in some way relates, you know, would be, we could treat as an extension of our progression of interest. So I looked, we researched, did various things and came across the T-Horse Road, so-called. And this was one of the longest trade routes in the ancient world, about 3,000 kilometers of trails across amazing range of, of country, high mountains, lush valleys, deep gorges. And in China, this is very well known, the T-Horse Road, because from the 7th century, the Tang Dynasty, the Tibetans discovered uh, tea. It's a slightly complex story, but, but basically tea comes from this border area Southwest China, northern Burma, northwest Laos, and Assam, northeast India. And the Tibetans who were making incursions at the time in the 7th century, and this was before Yunnan was part of China, discovered it and it was very important for them because the other part of the story is that the Tibetans, the Tibetan plateau is high up to 5,000 meters. And there's something called high oxidative stress. So living in the 
on the Tibetan plateau or the Altiplano in South America isn't very good for the human body. And, and of course, uh, lack of fresh vegetables because of the, the climatic conditions. But tea has such a complex wealth of various chemicals, amino acids, tannine, that actually help high oxidative stress. And the Tibetans fell in love with it to the point, I mean, still today, they, they're the, they, they drink more tea than by quantity than any, anyone else in the world, I mean, per capita. So anyway, there was this trail. It was known to the Chinese, very well known, everyone learns about it in school. And the West, hardly anyone. Now, for a photographer about to embark on a large project like this, which always take at least two years, and a lot of commitment, we ended up 20 weeks of shooting. When you're going to commit to a project for this amount of time, you want it to be, to have promise for, for your own creative work. And this was basically, from a photographer's point of view, virgin territory. In other words, there wasn't already a book on the T-Horse Road. There wasn't already a National Geographic article on the T-Horse Road. So on top of that, it's a, a perfect linear narrative story. You start in the south and go up to Tibet. And it had everything, including amazing cultural diversity and great food as well <laughs> as we discovered <laughs> absolutely it's interesting that i mean china has it's if not the world's greatest cuisine it's certainly vies with the french and france is smaller because there are so many provinces with just wonderful food yunnan is rather different it's kind of it's should we say it's not so complex it's more like Northern Italian food to French, but the ingredients are fantastic and it's very, very popular with all visitors. Absolutely. Uh, you've noticed that. So it, one of the great things in Lijiang, which is where you have wonderful property, is to go to the wet market in the mornings. This is a huge market. It's a real one. It's not, not created for tourists or anything like that. And just to just to wander around and poke around and and even eat uh, at the stalls there is fantastic experience for anyone interested in food, as we are. <laughs> Absolutely, and Michael, the book that you created, this gigantic coffee table tome, it's just extraordinary. Some of the photography, not some, all of the photography in that book is just mind-blowing. Tell us about your favorite shots in that book. Well, the, it, it's always hard to find favorites. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll come to an answer in a second. But I, when you're doing a, a story, and basically that's when, as a photographer, I'm at my happiest, which is doing a story, which is the trade I learned in, with magazines, then you are actually building up a set of photographs which together do the job. In other words, it's not just 
one picture being great and that picture being good in a different way. They have to work together. So the whole thing becomes a creative unit in itself. But the, I suppose that the, that the photographs that I have the most affection for are the ones which, where the occasion itself was memorable. That's quite normal, but of course, memorable occasions don't necessarily make memorable photographs. But in particular, we went, we were crossing, well, we were driving up one gorge, where in the old days, with the T-horse road, a lot of these, these rivers, because of the, the real, the genuine ruggedness of, of the, the landscape, where you have massive deep gorges, steep cliffs, and fast-running rivers like the Mekong and the Yangtze, there's no way to get a boat across. So getting, getting horses across, uh, these are small horses, horses, ponies, ponies and mules, but getting them across a gorge meant using what's now called a zip line, but in those days they called it that, basically a rope, or rather two ropes crossing in opposite directions, one end higher than the other, and a pulley. They put the horse on a pulley, and there was a guide rope, and put it across this foaming river. Well, you would think that that's a thing of the past, but we were driving and came across exactly this. There was a community, uh, Lisu, uh, an ethnic minority, and they still used this. They were steel cables, and it was, it was remarkable. I mean, depending on the angle of the cable, the speeds could get up to about 30 miles an hour. You would not want to fall, right? I photographed two young children, a, a boy and his younger sister, going back from school across the gorge. And, and the way you did it, you have a pulley on, on the cable, and that, that has a hook. And then, and then a thick twist of rope that you put onto the hook and the other part around your bottom. And off you go. And I thought, that's remarkably dangerous. But then when I saw these two kids, and they were very sweet, I thought, don't be a wimp. If they can do it, you should. So I did. And I went with a co-pilot, local man who knew how to do it. So we were opposite each other, hanging off this thing. And what, what a trip. I mean, really. But the problem was getting a good picture. So I used, I held my camera in my right hand as usual, held on to the, uh, the pulley, as you would, uh, with the left, took the pictures, got to the other side, looked at them. This is what, of course, you could do digitally rather than with film. And it was fine, except I could see my own hand with white knuckles. Well, that's not very good. Anyway, so we went back and did it again. So this time I did what <laughs> any sensible person would do. I used both hands and held them behind my head. Now, at this point, my co-pilot was quite alarmed, it seemed, <laughs> because I was dangling on my bottom. 
as we were going. So the worst thing was that he was looking at me. So I kept, no, 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 don't look at me, don't look at me. So finally he looked away and I took the picture and it was fine. And we got to the other side and I sort of rethought the position and I thought, well, maybe he was right. <laughs> that picture's in the book. <laughs> Oh, Michael. So as you know, I'm a hotelier and we've started this wonderful group of hotels, uh, boutique hotels. We call it the Lux Tea Horse Road. And you have been to the one in the, in Lijiang and the one in Benzilan and will soon be opening in Shangri-La. But I think when we were on our photography trip, we went to the most amazing spot that when you arrive, your jaw drops because you have this ravine and the houses are clinging to the side of the ravine. And I was just incredible. And you said that, I think you called it Baoshan. I think they they also call it uh, Songtown. I would never, if you'd have told me then, do you know one day you will have a hotel here? <laughs> I would laugh. I know, but it's we remarkable. Do. We do. It's, it's a small one, but how incredible was that place? Because we had to leave the car and then we had to walk a long way and then we walked up the hill and that was magic. That walk up that hill through the the village gate with the person sitting there smoking the pipe. Oh, it was just heaven. And I, and we were we were all of us, we were running around taking so many pictures. And I just loved it. Remarkable, but remarkable place. You've been there before, of course. And Yes, yes, I've been there before. Quite a remarkable uh, settlement because, as you say, it, it's, it's built on a very steep hillside. And then one part of it, it's, a, it's actually an old volcanic plug, you know, the, the centre of an old volcano. I mean, it's quite small. So it, it's like a citadel sticking up and over this uh, quite steep stretch of, of the Yangtze. And the people there are Nashi, which is one of the, one of the ethnic groups. And as, as we, you and I were talking a little while ago about Yunnan is special, not least for the fact that it has 25 ethnic groups within the province. And that's half of those in China. And the, the group here are called the Nashi. But the interesting thing is that um, apart from, there was a lady from Sichuan who had a small guest house and she had married a Nashi man so she could translate. But the whole village did not speak Mandarin. And in fact, I was told that the Nashi dialect that they speak is not even the same as the one in Lijiang, which is about four and a half hours drive away. <laughs> Incredible. But 
this this was, I think, for me, probably the peak of the excitement of, of that journey. And I think this journey that we've created uh, along the, the Lux T-Horse Road is really very, very interesting for, for people to follow from the different scenery, which is so dramatic, um, not just for from a photography standpoint, but just any mm. any person who sees what you and I were seeing as we traveled along the, the T-Horse Road, it's just mind-blowing. I defy anybody not to be impressed and, and blown away by this uh, wonderful scenery that, that we have. And of course, the added advantage of being able to taste the Poetie, because all these places, they very proudly have wonderful tea shops and tea houses. They're, they're pressing the tea. They're, they're showing you how to make the tea. And, th and this is fantastic. Then you get into the, the raw Poetie or the cooked Poetie and, and all the differences of that. And it, it's really very, very interesting. So, Michael, how would you describe the the T-Horse Road as a journey for, uh, shall we say, a Westerner who wants to come to visit uh, China? Would that be something that you would, would recommend? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, what excites me now, Paul, is that I have not seen quite a number of the, the new boutique hotels that you built there or converted traditional structures and a trade route like the T-Horse Road was of course conducted by caravans horse caravans and they would be carrying carrying the tea up from south to north um, and doing it in stages so uh, they didn't go all the way they went each team, each caravan went some of the way and then it would return with, with other products because they, they weren't going to go back home empty. But at each stage along the way, you had caravanserai, stage pulse, be the, the American equivalent. And so what, and each, there were, each would be a day's journey along the way. And some of them would be bigger because there'd be a, a big center like Li Jiang. Um, and so what you now have is the modern and frankly luxurious and comfortable equivalent of these ancient staging posts, the, the caravanserai. So you're following the actual journey, but doing it, you know, without what I'm sure is the true discomfort of having, having to lead a hundred ornery mules and, and ponies along muddy tracks. So that's the excitement for me. Uh, yes, of course, it's, it, not only is it visually spectacular and culturally interesting, but it is a journey. And it's, it's a journey with a, a, a true natural history. And to be able to follow that seems to me a very exciting project for anyone. 
So, Michael, um, what's in store for you in the future? What what have you been doing lately, and what what is capturing your imagination apart from uh, everything that we've discussed today? What's captured my imagination is uh, is a, a plane ticket and a, an airport. I'm not sure I remember what they look like anymore. <laughs> but uh, so my horizons have been limited. I. I my my life my for 40 years turned out to be seven months on the road on long trips like five weeks to places like yunnan and the amazon um, and now obviously for the last year and a half it's been hyde park corner which is <laughs> just a, a few stones <laughs> throw down the road i just do my morning walk it takes me an hour to get there so obviously that's what's in the imagination. But I've been actually very busy. The one of the things that, first of all, and, and before the pandemic, the Tea Horse Road inspired not just an interest in in China, but in tea. I'm from the north of England, of course, so we drank tea. Well, we thought we knew what we were doing. <laughs> but when I tell <laughs> When I, when I, sh- my my uncle, who was a, he was an engine driver on the um, London and North East Railway, uh, which meant steam engines, and I remember he used to drink. He used to have a pint mug, and this is what you did. He was from Yorkshire, I was from Lancashire, but we both had, both cultures of the North have a large mug, and a very very strong tea with milk and sugar. And as we like to say, strong enough to stand a teaspoon up in it. Will I, will I try and explain this on my, my talks because I do speaking around China? I m- met with frank disbelief. Why would anyone want to do that to, to tea? But anyway, so I discovered that far from knowing everything about tea, I knew nothing. And it's a, I mean, it's a wonderful world. And I then went on to do the other teas, because the poor tea, as it's called, named after one of the locations of one of your properties, uh, poor, is a very special kind of tea. It post-ferments. In other words, the, um, the fixing that you need to do by usually by firing in a wok or heated plate to, to stop the fermentation doesn't work completely with this large leaf tea and it continues to ferment and it, in the old days of course it continued to ferment on the back of ponies you know in the rain horse sweat stuff like that and um, so it, it's very interesting tea but it's only one of six there's the black tea that we in the west mainly consume there's green tea in the spring there's white tea there's yellow tea there's oolong tea with its very complex processes so i got very involved in this and i did a book called the life of tea and the actually i it's a bit boastful but in 2019 that received a fortman mason award for drink book of the year and it was the first time that a non-alcoholic book had done so so that was one thing but drink and food are an interest of mine and a professional interest it most photographers 
to either the sort of photography I've been talking about, and that's what I mainly do, which is out there in the real world, or studio work, which is completely different. But for me, and I do both, which may sound strange, to me it makes complete sense. I, I call it two-handed shooting because each balances and contrasts with the other. So one of my specialities uh, here is food and drink photography, which is a very interesting form of studio still life. So it demands a lot of care and a great love of food. I mean, you have to know as much as a chef about the, the ingredients, how something should look. Um, and it's very sensuous. Anyway, so that's what I've been doing. And then, of course, you helped us with the Salt Cookbook when we opened the Salt of Palmar, and and that book was incredible. And and you did the whole thing for us, and and we're we're really very very grateful and very happy that the Salt Cookbook came out about a year ago. In fact, not long before the pandemic. That was a lot of fun to do, and that was. Uh, but but I, I was working with with real professionals. I mean, this of course is the key. Doing that kind of photography, you're not on your own. It's team effort, and the whole culinary team, headed by Dave Minton, are fantastic. Real professionals. And I hear that Chef Dave, he wants you back in Mauritius to capture the food at the new um, Lux Grand Bay Hotel. And, uh, yeah, and I hear that uh, you're being tempted back. <laughs> Indeed. We're planning that trip now. <laughs> no temptation was needed. I'm looking forward to that very much. Well, thank you very much, uh, Michael. Any, any uh, last thoughts before we leave you? Any last thoughts on the T-Horse Road? I, I must say, it's, there's a sort of romance to this place, this journey. And I would really, really encourage anyone to go. As a slight inducement, we're now planning, and we hope it would start in the spring, this depends, of course, on visa policies and quarantine policies, but we're hoping that in the spring we'll start with this. I'll be leading a photo workshop on along the T-Horse Road from one property to another. And this is going to be very exciting because, A, I get to go back and visit my favourite places and the new places that you've just been opening, uh, but also, I'll be able to show people my favorite parts, views, and it should be uh, a lot of fun. So we're going to try and keep it sort of small. I don't think we should have more than six or eight people at a time. So with luck, I could just stay there and do one after another. But anyway, so that's actually what apart from Mauritius which that shoot is coming up very soon but that's what I'm most looking forward to making happen wonderful and I'll 
be so happy to join you on that trip. Please, yes, indeed. That's for sure. <laughs> Michael Freeman, thank you so much. You've been wonderful. We're so grateful. Thank you. Great pleasure. Great pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Spirit of Lux with me, Paul Jones. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.